Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 167, and it's part two of our series called Instant Replay. And today we're looking back on an episode I did with Barbara Brown Taylor uh, in the spring of 2020. Yeah, 2020, right, right in the right in the thick of everything <laughs> what we were going through in 2020. This was an episode uh, for our series, Women's Voices You Need to Hear, and it actually went up before all the the madness started. I, I believe it was before that. Uh, I don't remember. 2020 was a blur, right? <laughs> but I think it was before like everything went nuts because we did a series called Women's Voices You Need to Hear. It was January, February, and some of March. And I think this episode dropped like end of February, maybe very early March when like the rumblings of the pandemic were beginning. Um, but this episode was was a highlight for me in 2020. Um, Barbara is somebody who I had the chance to meet um, at the Wild Goose Festival. And um, yeah, we had like a, a moment where she was doing a book signing uh, for Holy Envy. Uh, any book you wanted that you had, she, she would sign it for you. I had Holy Envy, and um, I went up to her, and I gave her the book, and I was super nervous, and I, I was nervous for this episode as well, but I was super nervous, and I said, I, I just wanted to thank you, you know, so much for uh, your work, and it's really influenced my work, and so genuinely, she very quickly pivoted and said to me, tell me about your work, and I was like, oh, you want to <laughs> think to myself, you want to hear about my work. So I said, well, you know, I went to, to seminary. I got my, my doctorate. Um, a lot of my thoughts about God began to change about halfway through. Uh, well, they've been changing for a long time, but really started to change like halfway through the program. And, uh, you know, I started this podcast and we talk about these things and deconstruction and you know I said your your work has been you know very big in my life and you know she said to me she 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 listened you know like when someone you could tell when someone just asks you a question and they're just not really listening like she stopped signing the book and she like looked at me in the eyes and listened to my entire response and said your work is very important and she really encouraged me with what I was doing I was like wow and so I was fortunate enough to get her on the podcast I emailed her um, later that fall, and I, I sent her a picture that we had taken together. I said, this is, you might remember me, um, you know, we talked, blah, blah, blah. And I said, would you come on my podcast? And she was like, absolutely. And so we had a really fun conversation here about her book, uh, Holy Envy. And um, I think we, we go into some other pieces of her work as well, but that was kind of the, the major focus of the of the conversation for me. And uh, kind of, you know, like like anybody, but especially like a Barbara Brown Taylor, when, when she maybe segues into a different direction, uh, you follow. <laughs> you follow the lead because it's Barbara Brown Taylor. Um, but this was a fun episode. Uh, I really liked it. I wanted to let you know, too, about another piece of her work that a lot of people aren't aware of. And this might be your thing. It might not. Uh, she is an editor um, of a series of commentaries called Feasting on the Word. And uh, there's, it basically goes through the lectionary. So there's three years of the lectionary, year A, B, and C, and it rotates every three years. And uh, she and uh, another guy, I forget his name, last name is Bartlett, 
but they edited together this commentary uh, on the passages of the lectionary. And every passage uh, has one, two, I think four different people write about that passage from four different perspectives. And sometimes you'll open up a book, um, you'll open up the book and you'll see maybe, I don't know, let's just say Psalm 23. And instead of seeing one person write about Psalm 23, there's four people writing about Psalm 23. And oftentimes each person will write something drastically different than the other and sometimes even be um, in disagreement with one another. But it's so interesting to see how four different people might look at, a, at the same passage and come to drastically different conclusions. And I love this book because it really, it helps me in this, in this phase, uh, this series of commentaries and this season that I'm in to really uh, see that the Bible is not this static book that there's one way to think about and understand it, but there's multiple ways to think about it. And this book, this, this book, it's not a book, it's a series of commentaries. These commentaries really bring out uh, the multiplicity of understanding. That's a word, right? Multiplicity of understanding um, when it comes to the Bible. So really good stuff. Uh, it comes, like I said, it's a series of commentaries. You can buy them one at a time. You can buy uh, the whole year of commentaries for like 150 bucks, or you can buy each one uh, hardcover, softcover for about $30 um, and each book there's like usually four i think in a year so each book will take you through like three months or so uh, of the lectionary but it's really good uh, i'm working through it now i try to read it like in the morning um and then that's kind of like my my morning quiet time just to kind of get my head straight uh kind of read what somebody has to say about a particular passage uh maybe write something about it in my journal ponder it throughout the day and, uh, and go from there. So good stuff. Check it out. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, Feasting on the Word. Special music today is from my friend uh, Forrest Clay. If you ever heard of Forrest Clay, you're missing out. Look him up on Spotify, iTunes, all the places. He has a brand new album uh, coming out. He's releasing new music. Really talented guy. Really good stuff. Uh, please go and support him. Show him some love. Rate his music. Give it a good rating. Uh, and download it and pass it around to your friends. Also on the show notes today is Patreon. If you want to support the show financially, if this has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, it's a place where you can go to support the show. Uh, it's a monthly tier-based program where every tier gets its own reward, whether it's a uh, weekly vlog post, it's a bonus podcast episode or an early release of an episode. Uh, there's a Marco Polo group. There's a bi-monthly coffee chat with me, um, all different sorts of things. So head over there and check it out, patreon.com slash whatifproject, and also buy me a coffee. If that's more, if it's more your thing to not do a monthly program, but you just want to do a one-time uh, gift, you can do that as well at buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject. Why is it called buy me a coffee? I don't know. You're not really buying me coffee. You just, uh, I think one coffee is $5. You can pay for five coffees, 10 coffees, whatever. I'm not going to use it to buy coffee. Well, I might. I'll probably use it for groceries. Uh, and there might be coffee in the groceries. So you might actually be buying me coffee. Who really knows? But all the links are in the show notes. Uh, but let's be quiet. I'm going to shut up. Uh, let's roll the tape. And this is episode number 167. Barbara Brown Taylor. Enjoy. I wonder what was it like to see light so low and 
the sky to follow it blindly to see it shining so bright did the stars know the light would show the way to the savior of the world here the angels are singing glory they're telling the story that can say Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, today I'm excited to introduce you to one of my favorite writers, uh, someone whose writings, writing style, and understanding of faith has deeply influenced my own, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Glenn. I'm glad to be talking to you. Thank you. So Barbara, I was first introduced to your writings by a professor in seminary, and I had told him uh, my own story of walking away from my job as the pastor of a church and how at that time I was really struggling like so much to figure out what are my next steps in life. And he was like, Oh, well you need to go read Barbara Van Taylor's book, uh, leaving, leaving church. And so I did. And in that book, you really helped me kind of put some words on things that I hadn't been able to process very well up until that point. Uh, but your books are addicting. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. And so <laughs> I then read uh, learning to walk in the dark I'm an altar in the world, uh, Holy Envy. I just couldn't stop. I've picked up this year's uh, collection of Feasting on the Word, which for our listeners is kind of a commentary that Barbara helped edit on the passages of the lectionary. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm like the head of your fan club, if you have one. I'm the head guy. <laughs> you know, I just miss the days of sending out eight and a half by 11, you know, photos. It's yes. over. <laughs> <laughs> but all that to say, uh, seriously, though, thank you for your work. Uh, I'm sure I speak for many when I say that I'm beyond grateful for the impact that you've had on my own faith journey. So thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, so to kick off our discussion, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your story? You know, who are you? Um, what do you do? What makes Barbara tick? You know, asking that of a person with white hair is a really dangerous way to start. No, that <laughs> so, we could go on for some time. Say, <laughs> I think my life has fallen into about thirds. Mm. So the first third was seeking, and the second third was deciding to become ordained in the Episcopal Church. And I still am an Episcopal priest in good standing. Mm. But the last third was teaching college for 20 years. And now I'm about two years into whatever's after that. So I'm officially retired. Ha, ha, mm. ha, ha. <laughs> um, uh, one of my favorite writers, Matthew Fox, says a better word would be rewired or refired. Mm. So what I did today, let's talk about what I did yeah, today instead of my story. Um, I worked on Always a Guest, which mm. is a book of about 30 talks I've given away from home, sort of, it's subtitled, Talking About Faith with Strangers. Mm. Um, and so that was the first part of the day. Second part of the day was an essay for the Christian Century called How My Mind Has Changed. Mm. They've given me an opportunity to talk about that. And the third was setting up files for 2020-21, which 
got to be so many that I just quit and went and cooked <laughs> dinner. So I have lasagna in the oven. Oh, there you go. That sounds good. Homemade lasagna. Yeah. Family recipe. I make it up different every time. Oh, okay. Today I have arugula. So yeah, there's arugula between the layers today. I like it. Do you miss teaching college or was that something that you felt like you were ready to, to kind of wrap up? Here's all I can tell you. I, I, I stopped before I was ready to stop because my mother was ill and mm. my sister was ill. And so I stopped before I was ready, but I just checked the mail there yesterday. And what I've noticed is every time I drive by the college, I smile so mm. big mm. and I walk down the hallway so grateful and I don't want to be there anymore. And I'm so glad I was there. So whatever the timing was about, it was right. It was right. Were you, uh, were you raised in any kind of a particular faith? And I asked that because it seems like obviously faith and the church um, teaching has really uh, kind of oriented your life. So I'm curious as to the early stages of your life, was that something you were, you were raised in or something that came mm. later on? Mm -mm, I was raised against it. I was mm. raised intentionally without it. Mm. So I was the eldest of three daughters born to a psychology professor and a mother with really no spiritual temperament particularly she was a you know lapsed southern methodist before there even was a united methodist church and mm. they raised me i think as a humanist because we you know listened to shakespeare after dinner and went to plays and and learned beethoven and bach so i think they raised me believing in education um, in lieu of God, because religion had been so painful to them both. Mm. So when I decided at 16 to become baptized in the Baptist church by immersion, um, they were both deeply dismayed, mm. <laughs> which helped me a lot when I misbehaved in youth group because they didn't care. They just wanted me to come home and go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, kind of a teenage rebellion, but it stuck. And mm. I, that first third of the life was about seeking and, you know, the Episcopal Church is a boutique kind of bonsai tradition, but it's a broad-minded one that never mm. required me to believe anything in particular. It just required me to pray with other people mm. from a broad variety of backgrounds. So that ended up being the denomination that I have been at home in ever since. Mm. So I want to talk to you about um, your book, Leaving Church, which you go into some detail about um, your time in the church. And I also want to talk about Holy Envy uh, because they seem to represent, seems like those two first two seasons of your, of your life, uh, the first season, I guess, and then that last, the third, the third part that you talked about. Um, and they feel like, I don't know, really, they really both resonate with me where I think where I'm at in my life. I think our listeners are going to relate as well. So leaving church kind of when you left the pulpit, uh, Holy Envy is when you enter the, the classroom, we teach this world religions class, but before we jump into leaving church, which I'm curious, which of your books is like your favorite one? Like when you look at all your books that you've written, which one makes you glow the most? You have one child. Is that right? I do. <laughs> okay. So I, I don't have any, but I would say it's always the last book. But okay. thank you for getting the title of that first, you know, big press memoir, right? So many people remember it as leaving the church. And I never did that. I'm in churches yeah. all the time. I'm just in a wide variety of churches. I'm in and out. Um, in some ways, I'm post-ecclesial. I just learned that phrase. But I didn't what, leave What does that church. mean? Talk to me about that. 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I just, I borrowed that from a, a, a Catholic convert. He came out of a Pentecost, well, an evangelical background. Hmm. And he's now a professor at a really fine Catholic seminary. But when it comes time to go to Eucharist, he doesn't go. And he says he's post-ecclesial. So he's deeply theological, deeply rooted in practice. But whatever he means by that, it's an intriguing phrase, isn't it? I'm post-ecclesial. Yeah. But, um, but I didn't leave the church. I, I left church, by which I meant I left full-time parish ministry. And mm. you're right, the classroom is what I found after that. And I think you're also right that those two books go together, Leaving Church Followed by Holy Envy. Though there were two books in between, um, the two you mention are the bookends. Yes, the middle ones are the... Uh, the dark, I forget the name of it, right? Didn't write a second. Yeah, alt- but the, alter in the world and yep, learning, to walk, learning to walk in the dark. Exactly. Yeah, it felt like to me, like I was like, oh, it feels like the leave, leaving church and then holy envy should be back to back. But it's interesting that's where the two fall, fall in the middle. So on page 122 of Leaving Church, um, you quote Walter Brueggemann. And he said that uh, the world you have been so carefully prepared for is being taken away from you by the grace of God. And when I first read that quote, um, I remember I actually emailed my professor who recommended the book to me and I had to put the book away for like a week because that quote and that section of the book just shook me uh, Mm -hmm. so deeply. And I wanted to share with you a small piece of my story. I went to uh, Bible college and I got my degree in youth ministry and, and Bible. And then I left there right away and I went right into seminary. I got my master's of divinity, got a preaching scholarship, did all the different things in seminary. And then I left and I went on to do what everyone assumes an MDiv graduate is supposed to do, and that's pastor church. Hmm. And sometimes, like, it felt like I was literally built, you know, like wired to pastor church. It's all I ever wanted to do. Um, I prepared for it, like, super diligently, mastered all of my internships. I was so excited to graduate, you know, find a church, get to work. But when I finally got there, like, something, something changed, like, anything else, you know, it's a giant spider web of, of a story. But while I was there pastoring the church for a couple of years, I saw a lot of my fellow students growing and moving up the ladder and like ministry success, doing bigger, better things in their churches, their denominations. And all the while, like I was literally laying my head down at night telling God, like, I really don't want to do this anymore. And I'm really tired of pretending like, like I do. And like Mm -hmm. that quote said, I felt like something was being taken away from me that I spent a large portion of my life at that time preparing for. And as hard as it was, like looking back on it, it feels like a real, real gift to me because I don't think I'd be where I am today doing the things I'm doing, having conversations like the one I'm having with you if it wasn't for, for the experience that I had back then. And so I'm wondering, can you maybe share with us a little bit more about what that particular quote that you mentioned in your book meant for you um, as you left behind the pulpit that you had so diligently prepared to stand in? Mm-hmm. I think when I heard Walter say that out loud, Walter Brueggemann, it was the world you have been so carefully. Now, I think it was the world for which you have been so carefully prepared is being taken away from you, dot, 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 Mm. by the grace of God. And Mm. it was the dot, dot, dot that set me up for the you know, the knockout punch. Yeah. So that's what no one expects uh, that Mm. it's not by an enemy, but by the grace of God. But as you just described, uh, I, 
Well, here's what stood out from what you just said is you did what you thought you were supposed to do or you yeah. did what you were supposed to do. And in the same way, I've thought a lot about why I went to seminary straight out of college and why I sought ordained ministry. And it, my answer, not yours, is partly I was in love with the divine, with the sacred, hmm. with service, with being of some good in the world. And the only place Protestant Christianity pointed me toward was ministry. Mm. In other words, there was no convent for me to go to. There was no um, Dorothy Day, you know, style mission house where mm. I could engage the Catholic workers movement. So seminary and church was all I could see that I was supposed to do mm. with that love of God and wish to be of some good. It took a while, and again, my answer, not yours, to realize my temperament was not suited to the public life of pretty constant exposure mm. and of extroversion and of being all things to all people. Paul could do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And, and so I eventually wore out. I don't know how long it took you to wear out, but I wore out. Mm. And again, the Brueggemann quote was just a great rescue, a great pickup to suppose that might have been by the grace of God and not by the trick of an enemy, yeah. that I was both called to ministry and I, I wish to believe I was also called away from that form of ministry to discover how many other forms there were. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, I wasn't in nearly as long as, as you were. Um, I was, I pastored that particular church for about three years and then I'd left and I went to work for Apple and I still work for Apple. It's been, this was 10 years now. I'll be working for Apple in December. And so when I left the church, worked for Apple about two years into Apple, we started a church plant and I figured, you know, maybe we can start something fresh, start something new. And then it started out, you know, great, but then the same kind of things creeped in. And mm -hmm. kind of the things that I struggled with were like the politics of the church, for lack of a, of a better word. You know, like you said, mm -hmm. you have to be all things to all people. You have to be extroverted in some sense. And I could do it, you know, but I just didn't enjoy it. And there was just a part of me that felt like they were being, the things I really enjoyed were being drowned out by the things I didn't really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And like, I remember you know, even having to do like the board meetings and like the elder deacon meetings and sometimes being in the, in this room until like one o'clock in the morning talking about these things. And I'm like, why are we talking about this stuff? You know, what, do I, what, what does it have to do with anything? You know, it's so frustrating to me. And I just felt like I was like, I, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling, I think there was a feeling of almost like defeat because, you know, I don't know about your experience, but like in seminary for me, like everybody that was there pretty much, I'd say, I don't know, everybody, but 75% of the people were gearing up for full-time ministry, you know? So like, there was like this expectation that this is what you're supposed to do. And I remember mm -hmm. when I got there and started having these feelings, I'm like, is there something wrong with me? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then, you know, that's to me, one of the hard things is to, I'm going to use psychobabble, but to own my feelings without disenfranchising other people's feelings. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. In some ways I had to make them wrong to make me right. Sure. And it took a while for that to wear off, to, to just settle on the language of nature and temperament. And these days people talk about Enneagram and, mm. you know, all the things that make us who we are that, that fit us for some, for some vocations and make us misfits in other vocations. And it is hard when you feel like you're out of the mainstream, but look, it only took you three years. You were so much faster. <laughs> right. 
I mean, I made a quick decision. <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> well, and what you describe, you know, I call sometimes ending up being the CEO of a of a small company, and it's just not what you trained for. It's not what yeah. you thought it would be, and it's necessary. You know, the administrative functions. I don't even know if that's identified as a gift of the spirit, but it clearly is because I know people who love it. Yeah. Love, you know, the administration kind of chess playing, strategizing how to get a group of people from here to there, but I was not that person. Yeah, there were some people I remember in school who loved like the those classes where you we were we were taught like the different administrative type things and they hated like the teaching classes and stuff. I'm like, I, I love that, you know, but I hate this other stuff. So it's just interesting. I guess people are just wired differently to do to do different things. But what words of wisdom do you have, um, if any, for a, a person who maybe finds themselves in a place, maybe it's a church, maybe it's not, maybe something else, but they've worked really hard to get to that place. Uh, but deep down inside, they have that aching feeling that maybe this isn't just, you know, what they're meant to do, or maybe they don't feel as wired for it as they thought they did. Maybe they feel the spirit kind of calling them to do something else. They're kind of hesitant just because they've poured so much time, they've poured so much energy, they've poured so much money maybe into an education. Like what, what, what kind of words of wisdom do you have for that, that person? Well, first, let's touch what you just said, which is this is a dilemma of physicians who mm. prepare for years yeah. to become doctors, of people who go to law school because they're going to become you know, people who make things right in society, people who go to work for NGOs, for nonprofits. So this is not at all particular to ministry, but I think it is particular to high-minded vocations, mm. you know, to vocations where you do have some sense that that your job is to help shift things. So what I would say, if these people happen to be people of faith, and I'd probably have to define my terms, is trust the spirit that's at least gotten me through because mm. the spirit has terrible taste <laughs> and doesn't care a bit about our comfort level. That's true. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can't get anything but that really, I think from the new Testament or the, the Hebrew Bible either. So Somehow trusting the spirit um, has in the rear view mirror been the right thing to do every single time, hmm. even when it was painful and expensive and inconvenient and alienating to whole circles of friendship hmm. that had formed around those ideas of who I was. It's a tricky thing because I think brokenness is not a prerequisite for depth of spirit, but there's, seems to be no depth of spirit without brokenness. So mm. maybe that's embedded in the Christian message and maybe it's not, but I never want to say go seek suffering because life brings enough suffering, mm. but there is something to be said for um, opening to it or closing to it, turning mm. toward it, turning away. And that has something to do, if not with trusting the spirit, trusting some deeper current that is at work that is screaming at you yelling at you mm. um, even though it's asking you to turn around from the world for which you have been so carefully prepared mm. i think like you said too that following the spirit sometimes um and i forget the way that you worded it but in essence will sometimes rock the worlds of people in your circle who have watched mm -hmm. you grow mm -hmm. have supported you along the way and i think that's that's part of the thing that I've I've struggled with a lot, even with starting up this podcast and having the conversations I've been having is, you know, all the relationships I built in all of those years of college and seminary and church, you know, a lot of those people have stood in my circle, have watched me 
cheered me on, did all these things. Now that we're having these kinds of conversations, they're looking at me like, what's the matter with you? You know, like what, what happened to you kind of thing. And like their worlds are in a sense being rocked. And sometimes that friction that that causes is a difficult thing to deal with. Did you find any of that kind of stuff in your own life? I think because I had chosen the community I had, hmm. in other words, that Episcopal community that allowed me to be weird. It's already eccentric, <laughs> right? Nobody can even pronounce it despicable is how it comes out. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think not in my immediate circle, but I was very aware. Social media was not the thing then that it is now, but wow, did I get denounced Yeah. You know, from the edges. I even remember one time I was teaching at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, and I was standing in line with somebody who asked me who I was. And when I told them my name, they kind of stepped back and said, Oh my God, I was warned about you. Oh, you're that woman. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's, it is an astonishing thing Mm. and it's part of it, right? Yeah, it really is. What, what do you have? What kind of advice do you have for the person who, like you said, you know, if you follow the spirit, you know, follow the spirit, but what about somebody who maybe doesn't have that sense of the spirit? in their life. Do you have any, any thoughts for them? Well, I, I am not a spiritual director or mm. even a pastoral counselor, but I think the language can get in the way. Most yeah. people know what gives them life and most people know what makes them die inside. Mm. And that's all I'm talking about. That's good. Um, if it's, you know, addiction, if it's, if it's, you know, whiskey, if it's, uh, you know, then, then if that is what makes you more alive, I'd probably want to say, really? Could, right. Let's let's revisit. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'd have to learn to be a good listener. But I think most people know what what makes them more alive and what's killing them. And that's yeah. all I mean is yeah. is to trust the life giver. Trust mm-hmm. trust the life giver because most of us know what direction that's in, and we know when we're turning away from it. So. I don't want to confuse that with um, spirit language if it's mm. confusing. Mm. That's good. So let's shift gears into um, holy envy. So I'll fast forward through uh, a few years of your life. But uh, mm. on page uh, one of, of holy envy, actually, before I read that, for our listeners, what, what do you mean by holy envy? What does that mean? No, I, I stole that. I, I heard the phrase. I had no idea where it came from. It was so beautiful. It was like, it, it was a um, oxymoron, right? Yeah. Holy envy, a cardinal sin with right. holy. Right. right. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was attracted, and I did research and found out it had come from Christer Stendhal, mm. whom I knew as the dean of Harvard Divinity School when I was uh, at Yale. But he'd become the bishop in Stockholm, Sweden, and had only been in office a little while when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints announced the inauguration of a new temple in Stockholm. And there was a lot of local consternation. You have to remember Sweden had an established church Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, which meant clergy were paid by the state. And Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea of strangers from Utah (laughs) building (laughs) a gorgeous temple in Stockholm was upsetting. Mm -hmm. And Christer Stendhal of of the Church of Sweden was called the Microphone to talk about that. And he announced um, three rules for religious understanding. And the first was, if you want to know about another religion, ask its adherents and not its critics. Mm. 
And number two was don't compare your best to their worst. And the three was, third was leave room for holy envy. And he didn't say much of what he meant by that, but he went on to record a video session for the Mormon church to submit an article for the encyclopedia of Mormonism mm. about, about uh, something in particular that he envied in, in um, LDS doctrine. So he, you know, he kind of put his feet where his mouth was on that one. But, mm. but the phrase intrigued me because I'd noticed so many students in world religions would, would either read in the textbook or go on a field trip and find something they so admired or were drawn to in another faith, but they'd figure that made them damned, mm. that they were going to hell. And the, to even explicate that phrase of holy envy, that it could, if anything, aid where they were or inform where they were, that it, there was a holiness about that, mm. that made it not a sin, but a, a practice. It could even be claimed as a Christian practice. So mm. um, I didn't have to convince most of them they embraced the phrase and found it a way to lean into wisdom from other traditions without feeling like they had to leave their own or were betraying their own. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest points that I picked up in your book is that just because I admire something in let's say Buddhism or I envy something in Islam doesn't mean that I'm uprooting, you know, taking, I'm packing up my bags and I'm leaving Christianity to go over to this other religion, but it, it means I can look at that. I can have a sense of appreciation for that. And that can go towards making me a better Christian or a stronger follower of Christ. I hope that's true. You know, I even, I, I know one woman who says everybody needs a second religion to keep them honest in their first. Isn't mm -hmm. that interesting? That is interesting. You know, just to think about what looking over the fence to the other tradition does in terms of helping you take yours more seriously mm -hmm. and ask it hard questions you wouldn't ask if you were only with people who were just like you. Mm -hmm. So I love her idea. Holy yeah. Envy helps me take my own tradition more to heart. I like that. So page one, you say the book in your hands is the story of a Christian minister who lost her way in the church and found a new home in the classroom where the course she taught was not introduction to New Testament, church history, or Christian theology, but world religion. So I'm curious, before teaching the class, like how familiar were you with other religions? Because I would think to stand up in front of these, these students, um, you'd have to know a thing or two about the religions you're going to teach. So did you have some background in this kind of stuff, or was this kind of fresh ground for you? I hope no professors of world religions are listening to this. <laughs> I, came <laughs> <in without. laughs> I came in without a PhD, you know, yeah. the master of divinity and goodwill, <laughs> mm. a lot of travel, a lot of souvenirs. And now mm. in retrospect, I'd say with a lot of cultural appropriation mm. of other religions, but no experience of direct hospitality mm. um, by people of other traditions and no one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships and really no appropriate appreciation of the differences between traditions. I think mm -hmm. part of the dilettante's approach is all religions are alike. Like a lot of um, beginners, I saw similarities between traditions and that drew me, mm -hmm. but I had not yet appreciated the sometimes irreconcilable differences between traditions, which actually increases their beauty. You know, a ruby is not a sapphire, is not a diamond, is not a whatever. So, yeah. So it took teaching the traditions both to um, experience the hospitality of, of 
people of other traditions to make relationships and to appreciate our differences. Well, I would imagine, like, I'm thinking of myself, like, if I were in your shoes, like, was it difficult to kind of go into the classroom and try to have a, a I don't know if the word for it, but like a fresh perspective on each of the religions? Because I would imagine myself bringing with me the baggage that I have with other religions, like the things I've been taught or maybe told that aren't necessarily true. Like, was it difficult for you to kind of wipe the slate and look at everything with fresh eyes? Oh, no, I was just like the first person into the cave. (laughs) (laughs) I just I just went first and said, can you believe we bought that stuff? Can you believe Look at this. I'm going to show you this. You're going to read this. And we're going to look at our, uh, no stereotype survived that class. But I was just the first out of the gate in terms of um, discovery. And I I hope, I believe I was frank with every semester of students. When you teach world religions and the world of religions is always changing, you can't repeat anything twice because Mm. the headlines, the world foreign policy, you know, media, everything shifts as you go along. So um, I I did identify what I call the taste like chicken phenomenon, Mm -hmm. which is likening everything I encountered in another tradition by making it taste like Christian chicken. You know, Mm -hmm. so I had to (laughs) turn the Hindu Trinity into a simile for the Christian Trinity and meditation into prayer and Nirvana into heaven. (laughs) I could go (laughs) on and on. But that was a mistake you know mm. I, it's, it's not a bad way to get people to try gator tail or rabbit or frog's legs but right. it's not really <laughs> a great model for studying the world's religions but it, it you know it helps people to compare something they don't know with something they do know until they're comfortable enough with encountering what they don't know mm. is there a um off the top of your head like a book that you would recommend for people who maybe want to get a bird's eye view of like the world religions, like a book that maybe you recommended to your students or a book that you found helpful in preparing to teach? You know, I tried a bunch of different books and it's pretty easy to go on the search engine of your choice and either just look up introduction to world religions and you'll mm-hmm. come up with, I would always choose the latest copyright date. Okay. You know, I came into the class with Houston Smith, that's H-U-S-T-O-N, mm-hmm. who was uh my guide when I was in college, Uh, but he's gone now. And there are people, Mm. you know, with both feet in the world now. So it's, it's easy enough to go to those, but my book's not bad because I've got to, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It it at least um, kind of gives you a tasting menu Mm. of some of the things that Christians run into as they're delving into other traditions. And then again, the bibliography in the back, I think, would give anyone a good reading list. So the big verse in evangelical Christianity is uh, John 14, 6. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father but through me. And that was one of the very first verses like I ever had to memorize when I was in private Christian school. And it was often used in that context of, you know, all other religions are wrong, ours mm-hmm. is right, all roads lead to hell except, except the Jesus road. And so I'm wondering... I'm sure you've been, I'm sure you've encountered that verse and maybe even that argument um, in, your, in your lifetime at some point, but uh, what is your response to, to that verse? Like, how, how do you read that verse, especially in light of holy envy and what you've, you've learned in teaching the world religions class? <laughs> to anyone who's listening, why that verse? Hmm. Why not love God and your neighbor as yourself? Yeah. 
Why not the Lord's Prayer? Why not Jesus' central teachings? Hmm. When people ask him, I, I have grave doubts about whether on the night before he died, he was holding an interfaith seminar. <laughs> with his disciples yeah some people act like he was yeah right i know i yeah. i just and and since you've read holy envy you know you know my question is why do we grant priority to the verses we do um in the mm. same gospel two chapters earlier jesus says at john twelve forty four, he who believes in me believes not in me mm. but in him who sent me why do we privilege that yeah why do we grant priority to the one that says, in your words, everybody else is going to hell. That's mm. a really Christian right. verse. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so curious to me. I think I think anyone can say, why do we grant priority to the verses we do? Mm. And my answer was, because they make me right. Mm. And and those are my favorite verses. Yeah. And it, it took a whole new plunge into the New Testament to begin to look at the verses that call my certainty into question. Mm. And I won't go into those now, but since white privilege is in the news so much right now, I would suggest there's a kind of Christian privilege that's on the loose as well. Yeah. Um, that puts the self above the neighbor in a way that's profoundly unchristian. That's very true. And I think that what you said about like, you know, focusing on verses in the Bible that kind of support our own argument, our own point of view, and elevating those over the other ones. I think that's probably true in other religions as well. I mean, I have a friend at work who um, is Muslim, and he talks, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know much about the Quran, but he was talking about how there, you know, there are verses there that a lot of Muslim people like to latch onto in order to um, promote their own viewpoint and, and then push all the other ones kind of aside that might have maybe a little bit of a different way to look at it as opposed to reading all of them in maybe context, reading them all together, kind of elevating one above the other. That's a good point. You you just said something I've also said in other contexts, which is why do we read an entire gospel through one verse instead of reading, you know, one verse in the context of the entire gospel? Mm. And and honest to goodness, the great relief of John 14, 6 to me is Jesus is in charge mm. of who's on his way and who isn't. Yeah. Not me. Yeah. Um, I've, I've recently heard two different um, culturally, traditionally Jewish people, you know, talk about how relieved they are that Jesus is the one who gets to say who's mm-hmm. on his way and yeah. who's not. So I hadn't thought of it that way, but but I think that's an okay way to hear it. Mm, Why so. does that verse put me in charge? Yeah. No one comes to the Father but by me. In fact, A.J. Levine, one of my favorite Jewish scholars of the New Testament, said, you know, that she had a dream in which he, he saw her outside the golden gates and looked out and said, Oh, I know her. She's okay by me. <laughs> <laughs> Just playing with the English translation, but yeah. whoever's okay by him, you know, is okay. So I'm, I'm willing to leave it to him. I like that. It relieves a lot of pressure too. When we, when we do that, you know, we don't have to be the ones that make the decision or the ones who have to be right. Right. So in the book, uh, you share this interpretation of the story of the tower of Babel by a man named Emmanuel. I think his last name is pronounced Larty. Is that correct? That's right. Um, He says that the story of the Tower of Babel is about God's judgment on the dominance of one people uh, with one language whose only wish is to make a name for themselves. And I find that really interesting because I never looked at it that way. I always assumed that 
you know, God was mad because people are trying to be like him. They're trying to build this giant tower to heaven. So he made everybody speak a different language, sent them on their way so that they wouldn't be able to reach heaven. But this interpretation, like I've been playing with this interpretation in my mind uh, over the last few months. And I'm wondering, how does this interpretation of the story maybe mirror uh, the church in the West with our focus on evangelism, uh, trying so desperately to get everybody to, you know, quote, speak the same language of faith, almost like build this tower of theological beliefs that have subscribed will kind of land you in heaven. Like, is it fair to say, like, are we in the Western evangelical church kind of building our own tower of Babel? Does that make any sense? You said it, not me, Glenn. Okay. <laughs> Here's a way in which, and again, Emmanuel Larty, who was a professor of, um, I think, pastoral care at Candler School of Theology, Emory University, he was just the first to tell that story in a different way. Mm. And in the same way that Holy Envy functions, he sent me straight back to the text and went right mm. back to Genesis. And I worked and worked and worked my way through that text, and I could never find anything that said God was mad. Mm. You know, or that, or or that the interpretation I had always heard was the only interpretation. So you raise the question also of: Do we find in Scripture what we've been told to find in Scripture, mm. or does the interpretation actually take precedence over what's on the page? And yeah. you can think of a hundred other ways that's true. Like there weren't three wise men. That's a hymn. That's not in Matthew. Mm. You can think of um, the apple in the Garden of Eden. Doesn't say apple nowhere that, you know, yeah. the interpretation, nowhere does it mention sin. Nowhere mm. does it say the serpent was the devil. Mm. So the interpretation so often takes over what's on the page. And I love going back to the page, though I don't read Greek or Hebrew as well as I'd like to. So now, uh, you know, it would be a matter of opinion mm. as to whether that interpretation mirrors the church of the West. But I love an archbishop in my tradition, um, Archbishop Temple, who said, it would be a great mistake to think that God is chiefly interested in religion. Mm. And what I take that to mean is that God means to heal the world. That if I tweak my idea of mission from being growing the membership numbers of my religion to healing the world with any partners of any faith or none, who are willing to carry a bucket mm. <laughs> and hand out some bread, then um, it, it's no longer enough to build my tower with a cross mm. on top mm. because that's not healing the world, yeah. has not healed the world, shows no promise of healing the world. And so I wonder if I you know, can get with what seems to be giving life, which is when people of disparate backgrounds, beliefs, doctrines, cultures, get together to make make things different mm. for people who are in a world of pain. Um, that will be the individual decision of everybody who's listening to us tonight. But I no longer believe God's mission is to build my denomination in my religion. I believe God means to heal the world with mm. anyone who will carry a bucket. That's really good. I was reading... Um... Uh, Diana Butler Bass's book, uh, Christianity After Religion, I think it's called. And she talks in there about this, it's like a, like a fourth great awakening where it's about an inter, almost like an interfaith support system, so to speak, like where other faiths are, everybody just coming together, trying to be um, better humans, trying to make the world um, a more heavenly, better place. And I think it's just such a more beautiful picture than, as you said, building our tower and placing a cross on top. 
and trying to bring everybody to us. Yeah, and we're not going to land in the same place on any of that, right? Just like the yeah. the Muslim colleague you talked about who who's aware of a proof text in the Quran. Yeah. yeah. In some ways, there's a parallel in, I think, Christian communities who are finding kin across denominations mm. in terms of people's, what, leniences and boundaries and what they're positive about and, and what they're not. It's no longer, you know, the, the hard boundaries that count. It's these, these other more fluid boundaries that um, are giving way and bringing people together in Christian ways across denominations and in world religions ways across traditions as we find people who share our temperament and our vocation, our desire, our, our will to be of some, some use. So I've lost the, the thread now. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, well, one more question for you, uh, kind of going back to what we mentioned earlier about uh, other, not, other religions not kind of packing up our bags and going to another religion, but allowing other religions to um, make our own faith stronger and, and better. Is there kind of an example that you can give me um, maybe of how another faith, something you learn from another religion has made you a better, a better Christian? Like what's the kind of the biggest thing that comes to your mind when you think of that question? Oh, I, 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 you know, it's probably, predictable, I can't give you one answer. Right. From Islam, I've learned um, hugely about the importance of daily prayer, mm. you know, which I collapse down to sort of hello in the morning, good, good night at night. Yeah. Uh, from, from Buddhism, the importance of, um, I guess what Christians call contemplation, an empty mm. mind yeah. versus a talky, talky, chatty mind, yeah. you know, listening, listening, listening to divine reality, my words, instead of talking, talking, talking to it. And from Judaism, among many other things, um, the value of Sabbath, mm. no matter what, no matter what your excuses are, mm. it's a command of God, cut it out mm. one day a week yeah. <laughs> and stop earning your own salvation. So, mm. you know, those are just a, a few of things that have brought me back to teachings in my own tradition that I take more seriously because of my visits to the neighbors. I like that. Well, Barbara, uh, I could talk to you all night, but uh, we are nearing the end of our time. You have a lasagna in the oven uh, (laughs) that you have to get to. And uh, I want to respect all of your time, but uh, before you go, where can people find you uh, online? Oh, I'm famously absent online. You are. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I, I, I even tried a blog for the first time in my life, and it was called an anti-blog blog nice. on my website, which is just my name, barbarabrowntaylor.com. And I only made it to two because every they were both designed to get people to turn off the computer and go do something else. And the people would just say, more, more. <laughs> so Defeating the purpose. Books, the books are the best I have to offer, and I love podcasts because yeah. I'm in my ironing room right now. And you and I are talking with this marvelous instrument between us, but um, there are a ton of podcasts out there and I trust search engines to work, but it's the books that I work hardest on and uh, commend um, as the, the sum of my work. Well, they are, they are definitely beautiful indeed. So I'll put all the links to your books in the show notes so people can go and, and find them. Thank you. Thank you for what you do, who you are while you're doing it. Thank you for your work at Apple. Thank you for being a, 
conversationalist and a person invested in dialogue and a lover of God and a, and a servant of the gospel. I so appreciate you. Thank you, Barbara. I appreciate your time and I uh, will do it again sometime. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye, Bye-bye. Glenn. Does God have a face? Does he have a body or even a name? If he does, does he know that I'm alive? Is God even here? Does she care that I doubt? Does she care?
take a breath.